Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome, welcome. The slow road to better. Why do we do the slow road to better? Well, we've been lucky where we can talk about it to our our friends, people here at the Stroke Comeback Center, but now then we can tell more people across the world to learn about it. What is the it that we're talking about? Aphasia. Stroke yeah. survivors. Mm-hmm. TBI people. Life moves on. Inspiration help listeners. That our inspiration of a bridge of hope. I love it. Trying to help each other a lifeline. Part of it also is we started doing it. It's not because not because we just wanted to tell everyone to see what happened to us, but also we wanted to get better talking ourselves oh, with the phaser, and we wanted to one day. It's not gonna the phaser's not leaving it, but we'd like to crush it a little bit. Let's listen and listen in. All right. Well, today we are very very lucky to have a special guest with us on the slow road to better. We have Peter Levine. He's a researcher, he's an author, he's an educator and an authority on stroke recovery. Wow. Yeah, it sounds impressive, doesn't it? I know. And and I just shrunk up his bio. So, this isn't even all his stuff. This is just the highlights. He's published both articles and books on brain plasticity as it relates to stroke and TBI and lots of other important topics, including modified constraint-induced therapy, cortical reorganization, telerehab, spasticity, sensation recovery, and that's just to name a few of the topics he talks about. His book is called Stronger After Stroke. He's right here. I might have the first edition. I think it has other editions, but we used this in one of our book groups and we really enjoyed it. And we are super excited to have you join us today. So welcome, Peter. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I I appreciate it. I always have a a lot of fun doing these things and it's uh, good to get to know you guys. Peter, do you ever sleep? Do I ever sleep? Yes. Sounds like you you don't sleep that much. (laughs) You do so much. Oh. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, you were in the military, so tell me about not sleeping. Yeah. All right, so what we're going to do, Peter, is I am going to turn the conversation over to the members, and they have some questions for you, but you two are allowed to ask them questions, so feel free to uh, pick on them if you like. That's A-OK as well. All right, so with that, I'm going to turn it over. Who has the first question? Maybe you just give us a little background of your of your book and what it talks about and interesting stuff about it. The reviews of my book, Stronger After Stroke, are different overseas. They say I'm too obsessional about the medical system here in the United States and all the problems that we have with getting things paid for, things like rehab. When you are discharged from rehab, most people, um, and it may be different at the VA, but most people, once they're discharged, they're left to their own devices. They're like, wait a second, I plateaued. I was getting better. You discharge me and then I plateaued or did I plateau and then you discharge me? What's going on here? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? 
And there's an old joke about this. It's my joke and it's a very bad joke. And Melissa may be the only one who gets it. But so when you when you leave, they hand you an HEP. Melissa, what does an HEP stand for? A home exercise program. No, actually, it stands for hand them photocopies. And as they're walking, <laughs> I know it's a great joke. I'm full of them. So as they're walking out the door, you hand them photocopies full of these exercises they're supposed to do. Uh, yeah. And then left to your own devices. My book is there to fill that gap. What does clinical research say? Uh, what does neuroscience say? What do these other neuropsychology, all these other sciences have to say about recovery? And what can you do to bring it to your home in a way that makes sense to you, to caregivers, to clinicians, if you have access to them, but mostly to the person who owns the brain, because only you can drive neuroplastic change in your brain. Now, right after a stroke, um, during the subacute phase, there's a period in which the peri-infarct area, I have a brain here. Hi, here's my brain. There you go. There he is. Yeah, so you have an area that's clearly gone, kaput. It actually cavitates and fills with cerebral spinal fluid. And, but surrounding that area is a much larger area known as the penumbra. This gets a little bit sciencey, but during the subacute phase, early after the brain injury, those neurons want to come back and they want to go back to what they were doing for the last 50 years or whatever it was, for some of you much less than that. For me, it would be 60 years, but they're never really given a chance to because therapists, especially in the United States, where the push is to get people out the door, functional and safe as quickly as possible, they often teach compensatory movement. So if people have a hard time moving their right arm, they have them do everything with their left arm. And that leads to this brain coming back online and going, well, what do you want me to do? I've been doing the same thing, controlling the right arm for the last 60 years. And now you're not asking anything. Okay, fine. Then, and what happens in the brain is there's, and this gets technical, but it's a pruning of the dendritic arbor. The number of dendrites connected to those neurons just shrink away. Is it, it's use it or lose it. I'm sure you've heard that about the brain. So before they ever discharge from therapy, there's often this grand pruning in the brain. It's called learn non-use. And so once you're discharged, that plateau is the brain healing. And then once it's all healed, you plateau. It's a natural plateau. It happens. What happens after the plateau? Is that the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning? So often they're discharged with absolutely nothing, especially in the United States. And then they can turn to a book like mine and I can give them hints about simple stuff that they can do to recover and it's just set up. So, you know, there's something about mirror therapy and there's stuff about aphasia in there. And there's, you know, it's a very simple interface uh, for the book. So thanks for the question. That was kind of long winded. Sorry. I, I have over, uh, cause you know, I got hurt. I was, I think I got hurt. I was still in the army for like four and a half years and they let me just stay in the army trying to put me back together. And then I, uh, and then I got out then I was still going into, and Walter Reed, it's in, uh, well, it was in DC, but it's in Maryland. And uh, I was going there for a couple more years. And then finally, they're just kind of like, you know, you're out, you're done, get out of here. So then I was going to uh, an Arlington, a place there for doing PT and stuff. And uh, that's when they really started the, 
doing the paper. All right, it's like three weeks, sorry, three weeks, I think, three months. And they would just give me the uh, some work. And I could actually, I should have brought it out the other room. I have over a hundred pages of different working out. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna, like, I have so many papers, it's out of control. So the first question is, do you feel like you're still recovering? And the second question is, yeah. what what is working for you? I believe that the brain keeps going. It doesn't stop. If you want to keep keep want to keep going, it will. I, I mean, I was going to talk to you afterwards just to see, but I, when I um, when I got hurt, I got shot in the head right through here, and they took off forty percent of my skull, just threw it away. It was just they had to get a new uh, acrylic. And uh, the thing is, the part that got destroyed was uh, speech. There's one of those two things called the- Broca's area and Wernicke's area. Yeah. So yeah, the whole thing got destroyed. And so that's when I, like I should never be able to talk anymore, but I got something else in my brain went over here on the other side and I just went back to keep going, practicing, reading, writing. Great, I forget all the stuff they do me for the stroke comic center. <laughs> Reading, writing, just, you know, I've gotten better. I try to read books now. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I just, I believe that the brain just keeps going. If you keep going, like I have a working dog and I have to take him out like twice a day or whatever. And that's like, for me, it's like a huge, cause I hate being cold outside, <laughs> but uh, I take him out to go walking and, uh, it's just exercise. It, it helps your body, you know? So you, you just hit on a couple of cutting edge <laughs> concepts in neuro rehab. So uh, one of them is that you mentioned that the, what we call the Ypsilon, you guys know that the, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body. It also has speech and the right side of the brain controls the left side of the brain. It crosses over in the neckal area. I don't know why it does that. It, when you're a student, it's like the most confusing thing ever. Why it is would it cross over? It's so like, strange. But often what takes over is the, what's called not the contralateral side, but the ipsilateral side. So you might be very right. We found this all the time. We had a lot of brain scanning technology in our lab transcranial magnetic stimulation, and of course the big one, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. And we would find that somebody who's densely hemiparetic on one side, this side just wasn't doing the work, but we would constrain the good side, force use of the affected side, and the part of the brain that was still intact would take over. The ipsilateral side, completely wrong. We don't have to care where in the brain it happens. What do we care? You know, it, it's a yeah. hundred billion neurons. It's a quadrillion synapses. There's all <laughs> kinds of redundancies in there. Let it do its job. Just work your butt off and something good will happen. And that sounds like what happened to Pat. And the other question I have for Pat, is it truly acrylic that's in there? Acrylic, yeah. I think you're right. I think a lot of people are struggling to get you know, 50 hours and then that's it. And if they want to go 60 or 70 or 80, they have to pay, um, which is a struggle. And it's, it's sad. And I, I, I want you, or can you 
touch on that. Or maybe the question is, I don't know that Peter can fix our health insurance industry, but the question is what makes someone a successful survivor? Have an opinion or is your research shown that there are factors that really make a, a qualitative difference for those who are not in therapy per se with a, a, a PT or an OT or a speech therapist? I want to say that I am not survivor. I am not survivor mean to me, but I am I am thriver. A thriver. I you know what I saw you post that on your Facebook page and I like that even better. Because I am alive, but I am better, which better and happier and then forward, not backward. I am in meaning to me and I am just now I am just now I am in the writing I am the I I am I I feel like I I have I have three goals right I am I am writing I am painting and I am for the for in May I am trying to the part-time job, three goals, which is I am go to the better and I am now. Great questions all. And I think in, in some ways, Kitty just answered all of them at once. So I have uh, I've written a lot about this um, and thought a lot about this. I cannot tell you the number of people that I've met that have had brain injury and they're still smarter than I am. And I can't tell you how annoying that is. <laughs> it hap- It's like, you've had a brain injury. Can you dumb it down a little bit? Because I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, people come from all different walks of life. And, you know, one of the things that upsets me about the way that people, especially with people with uh, aphasia, are treated is everybody wants to finish their sentences and everybody, you know, thinks they're dumb because, you know, they can't get the words out and they don't realize the rest of the brain is just a buzz with ideas, but it's just the, the speech stuff. I think what Kitty pointed out though, was that she had these goals. And what I find you know, among super survivors, what I call super survivors, um, although that word thriver is a great word as well, is that they have something that they're so desperate to get back to they refuse to take no for an answer. Now, look, the, your brain is going to do what your brain is going to do. And we can talk about the size of the brain injury and how that's going to impact things. But ultimately, once you hit that plateau, it's that 10 or 15% of increased ability that allows you to go back to whatever it is that you love to do, to have ambitions like painting and writing and getting back to a job. That's what life's about. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what got us to go to school all those years and and everything else. I I will point out that people who at any time in their life were high-level athletes or high-level musicians, uh, they tend to recover better. And I did a talk a while ago with this very famous neurologist, an Indian neurologist, And I said, you know, why do you think that athletes and musicians do better? Do you think it's because they understand that practice is important? Because good athletes love to practice and good musicians love to practice. Or do you think that 
the portion of the brain dedicated to movement in these people is so much bigger than the rest of us that when they have a brain injury, they still have a lot to fall back on because they were more coordinated to begin with. And she said, probably both. So there's those kinds of factors. What did you do prior to the brain injury that probably matters? Going back to something that you really love and using that as motivation, I think that really matters. But it's going to be that 10 or 15% that the other people won't do because they'll go home. Therapist has said, you have plateaued. And now they have in their head that they're not going to get any better. The expert just told me, I'm not getting any better. She threw a couple of photocopies at me. I, I go home and what, what happens? Immediately they start to decline. They start to gain weight. They start to not walk the dog. They start to not focus on their ambitions and they just get slower and fatter. And then there's natural aging that is impacts everything. And they, you know, and they go, oh, well, it's, it's all over. So don't be those people. I mean, you guys are an awfully young group. That's the thing. When, you know, you have a, a stroke in your 80s, it's a completely different thing. But that's that's about the best answer I can give to that. It, it has to do with ambitions. Yeah, like uh, two, one, two, three, four, four years, I was hard at work, hard the uh, manager had the every seven days i were i was hard to working 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 and i now i was feel i am thinking what is my what is thinking mean to me what is thinking mean to me i i am not working what what do I feel like I am to me? And I am thinking that, okay, I should write. Uh, Regina, who is my, my best friend, my caregiver, and uh, she and I will write and writing my memoir. And I am thinking like, okay, I am painting and I am trying to art festival. I am part-time, searching my part-time. Three goals, three, three will be better now. Um, may I ask you, Kitty, what is your first language? Um, my first language is Cantonese. And how many languages do you speak? Cantonese, Mandarin, uh, uh, Shanghai means and English. Aren't those the hard ones? Uh, Cantonese. Any language is hard. Doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> no, there's a couple that are kind of easy ones, like Spanish or Portuguese. <laughs> okay. Like the ones. Do you <laughs> do you know Spanish? No. Mm -mm. No, I'm not asking you, Pat. <laughs> Uh, there used to be Hola. I remember that <laughs> exactly in, in high school yeah. it's like they told in class I started Spanish in, in high school okay and then they did take. you learn any other in college or anything no, no. well okay there's she had see, four there, languages right, there was, settle down boys <laughs> there's in, that was important in college because the difference the Type of beer was from different countries, so yeah. yes. So that's the motivation part you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Beer? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we can all agree on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my wife is a, a physical therapist and uh, she's from Finland and she was born and bred above the Arctic Circle in an area wow. called Lapland where apparently they ski to school every day uphill both ways. I don't know how that happened, <laughs> but, they, but they did. And what's interesting is, you know, Finnish, I, I absolutely, I know nothing in Finnish. It, you talk about easy languages, like Romance languages, Italian and French and, and Spanish and maybe Portuguese. Finnish is unrelated to any other language. They sat up there top of the, uh, of the globe talking to nobody for like 8,000 years, came up with this completely insane language. What's interesting though is we have these jokes, you know, well, she's, she's in rehab, I'm in rehab. And what happens if you have a brain injury and it knocks out the English and, uh, and, and you know, and I can't speak, I can't speak Finnish. What are we going to do? You know, this is going to be a, a hard problem. What, what happens often with language with somebody who's multilingual like Kitty is that the first language to be scraped off. Well, actually we have a speech therapist here, so I, I should shut up. But the first language typically to be, uh, to be scraped away is the last language that they learn. So for a kitty, it might be English. And then she has Shanghai ease. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And then, and then it would go to Mandarin and then finally Cantonese, but that's the redundancy. That's the same thing as an athlete who has redundancies in the motor cortex or a musician who has redundancies on a particular part of the motor cortex. The, if we were to scan her brain, Broca's area and Wernicke's area, not only would take up more cortical real estate, there'd be more blood flow, there'd be more uh, connectivity, all kinds of things. Redundancy is a beautiful thing in the brain. And as Pat points out, it never ends. There's no ending to this thing. There's a whole part of like uh, aging uh, medicine that has to do with continually building redundancies in systems you don't even think about. So I guess it's a long-winded answer to say that building these redundancies now, you guys are all so young, so that when something else hits you, like, I don't know, aging, you still have a lot to uh, fall back on. Thank you. Thanks for listening. It seems like it's a consistent rehab too. We're continuing to grow back to hopefully how we were, getting closer to how we were, improving our memory and our vision. So I think it will never end. That's what we hope. Can you talk a little bit about um, tone and spasticity? There's a few things in my career I'm pretty proud of, but one of them is an idea that I've worked hard to articulate in my book. It's the neuroplastic model of spasticity reduction. So if we think about the primacy of the brain, the brain controls every one of the trillions of cells in your body. Um, and it certainly controls, certainly controls muscles as well. Um, spasticity is an attempt uh, by the body to control muscles. Muscles hate to be overstretched. And the lower than spasticity is flaccidity. Nothing happens. If you move the person's arm, it feels like, like this. There's nothing there. There is a tone. Tone is a natural thing that we all have, um, but spasticity is an attempt, not by the brain, but by the spinal cord to control the muscles and keep them constantly flexed. 
because if they're not constantly flexed and stable, they can be flaccid and torn and they'll tear. So it's a very immature protection mechanism sent out by a monosynaptic stretch reflex from the uh, spinal cord. It gets very boring. But what if you were to reverse that? What if you went back and you said, well, I want to reestablish brain control. I don't want the spinal cord telling my muscles just to flex, 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 flex. I want the brain to tell them to flex and relax and do everything that they used to do. And uh, yeah, so there's this idea in therapy that you shouldn't use spastic muscles because if you do, you're going to exacerbate spasticity. That's the thinking, right? So here's the way it goes. Like um, if somebody, their hand is always in a fist, you would never put a ball in their fist and have them squeeze it because if you do, you'll make the finger flexors really strong and then they'll be even fisted more, which is complete nonsense because I will tell you right now that, Pat, do you have um, spasticity in the right hand? Yep, that's good. But just in the in the hand, fingers, grasp and release. I, yeah, I mean, I got lucky because I went to a place my first year I was at and they did a good time. I didn't have a spasticity too bad because they kept me, my arm straight the whole time. They would put a, uh, uh, I can't say word. Like a splint? <laughs> I, yeah, and then then they'd make me practice stretching my whole body and stuff, yeah. Yeah, actually just looking at your hand movement right now, I'd say you'd be an excellent candidate for constraint-induced therapy. You'd be like spot-on perfect candidate. And what is that? Constrain the unaffected side, constrain his uh, left side for you know as much as he can tolerate it, but as little as 15 minutes helps, but we do it five hours a day. <laughs> oh, you have a- uh... What about me? No? Well, what do you yeah. got? Let me, can you open your hand? You got some flexion, you have some extension. Here's, here's the, the way we, we do it. Um, this is the easy way. Can you pick up and release a washcloth three times in one minute? So you'd have to, you can't shove it in there. You got to actively pick it up. Oh no. The hand. Okay, so for our listeners, what you can't see is Chris <laughs> is trying to jam, I'm not sure what, into his hand. And Peter's a trying to demonstrate punch. for him what it's supposed to look like trying to pick it up with his affected side. And nope. <laughs> yeah, so so that's what you need to work on, Chris. And that doesn't mean that you don't have potential with something no. like constraint-induced therapy. It right. means that you got to work on the lesser things that will spark the brain to move the hand so that you, the, the holy grail in, in upper extremity stuff is constraint-induced. So for somebody like Pat, he can do it now and he will get better. Will he get perfect? Probably not, but he'll get better. So you, so if we have a listener who is in Chris's shoe and can't get his hand open or relaxed enough to pick something up, what is the step before reduced? So one of them comes from our lab. We did the seminal research. This is actually a colleague of mine, Stephen J. Page. Um, and then the other one uh, comes from uh, a great neuroscientist named V.S. Ramachandran. So, so the first one, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a great, I, if, if they were like neuroscience cards, the way they had baseball cards, I'd be the collector. Okay. So V.S. Ramachandran is this great neuroscientist. Just trust me on that. So 
let me start with the one that came from our lab and, and my colleague, Steve. Um, so it's called mental practice. And you guys know what this is. If you've ever been an athlete or a musician, you practice the game. Probably in, in the military, you do it. I bet you went as a firefighter, you dreamed when you were in training about whatever firefighters do. That dreamlike state, that dreamlike state that you get in where you're imagining the movement, but you're not doing the movement. But here's the thing. The portion of the brain that lights up when you imagine doing a movement that you know well is the same portion as if you actually do it. Not only that, but the muscles will fire very minutely, but they will fire in the same order and at the same duration for the same duration as if you actually do it. So let's review. If you imagine doing a movement that you know well, the same muscles fire and the same portion of the brain lights up. And here's some new stuff that came out in the last year or so. There's another way of doing this, watching somebody else do it. If you watch somebody else do a movement that you know well, that same portion of the brain will light up and those same muscles will fire. I'm a musician. I played drums forever. I ended up getting into a band that was signed to a major label, MTV touring the whole thing. I would not go on stage in front of, you know, 10,000 screaming drugged out kids without going and listening to my favorite drummer, uh, John Henry Bonham from Led Zeppelin, um, because I would sit there and I'd be like, I got to go on stage now. I got to go on now. Uh, and, uh, and my bandmates would be like, we're not on for another 20 minutes. So you better settle down. But that's, that's the thing. If you observe somebody else doing it, those muscles fire. And that portion of the brain lights up. If you imagine doing it, that portion of the brain lights up and those, and if you actually do it, so that's mental practice and it's been around forever. What we showed was that you drive cortical changes if you do mental practice in people who've had stroke. Uh, the other thing, so that's one thing, Chris, that you should do is mentally practice opening that hand. I know it sounds ridiculous, but do it. Anyway. Okay. So there was one other thing I wanted to talk about that Chris can try to, to spark his brain to get a hand opening in order to head him towards something like forced use, uh, which is constraint induced therapy. We force use of the affected side and that's mirror therapy. And that's the great yes, Ramachandran. So mirror therapy is, and I don't have a mirror here. Uh, Chris, you're a, you're a, um, a right Hemi. Is that right? Right, right sided weakness. That's correct. And my usually good side is right also. So you're right hand dominant. It's That's still, correct. It's still good looking on both sides too for Chris. Okay, so you guys are getting along now. That's good to see. Yeah, so that's my lovely wife doing pretending to be hemiparetic. So uh, she's uh, would be in that picture, a right hemi, uh, just like Chris. And you'll note that the left hand uh, is, she's looking at the left hand, the reflection of the left hand, looking like the right hand moving perfectly well. Thank you, Melissa, that is perfect. And, and so what happens is even though the right hand isn't moving, the left hand is doing all the work in the mirror, it looks like they're doing exactly the same thing. So the way you progress this is before this can move, you do it and it looks like it, but it's not moving. Um, and then as you get better, like where Chris is now, you would attempt to do it 
what it would look like is on this side, you would do something like this. And on this side, it would kind of attempt to do it, but not really be able to. And that's the way that you would progress it. As soon as you can do it, uh, it, it it's going to look like this in the mirror, but it's actually going to be this. You know, you're going to attempt to do it, but not, not do a very good job. So two ideas. And there's all kinds of stuff, you know, you can go to my blog, the Stronger After Stroke blog and find videos of, of, of um, mirror therapy and all kinds of talks about um, imagery and mental practice. Um, but it's a simple thing that you can do at home. All you need is a mirror. You don't need a therapist there to do it. What we need is just a little bit more movement out of Chris's hand. And then we start to do something like forced use constraint induced therapy. Well, right now I know I was going to ask Chris, do you have a... Uh a sprint that's not the right word like because like like uh our friend jerry he has one when you go to sleep you sleep it right here yeah your arm stays like that so you have that yep. Yep. at night or whatever yeah i had one too i just don't know if it ever works but they say you're supposed to do it you know i mean it's not like it's going to prevent or strengthen it is so that it will not go like this or whatever. So it's not like a proactive tool. So it doesn't make you better, but it keeps yeah. you from getting worse? Basically, yes. And for the listener, Chris was putting his hand in a, like in a fist. So your resting hand splint at night keeps your fingers in a more your hand in a more open position than in a tight curl position. I would interject one tiny little thing and it Pat touched on this. There's not a lot of good evidence that splinting works Um, in skilled nursing facilities. And a lot of people, it's very hard to get these things on. They continue to go into flexion. There's soft tissue shortening and people jam the splint on and that tears the small joints of the fingers and it gets to be a bit of a nightmare. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, stretching is yeah, great, for, great muscles, for muscles, but it, but it, it has, a, has temporary a temporary effect on, on spasticity, but it doesn't have any sort of long-term. The one thing that does help is using the spastic flexors. So for somebody like Pat, who has trouble opening his hand, if, he, if he's in flexion, he would actually go into flexion over and over and over and over again to reestablish brain control over the flexors. It's an anathema to therapists, occupational therapists, especially because they'll say, no, you're going to strengthen the flexors and make the spasticity worse. That's wrong. Trust me, those muscles are weak anyway. Even if you were to build muscle, you'd be fine. But that's not the... The idea, the idea is to squeeze into it to reestablish brain control. And it may not be the contralateral side. Remember, it may be the ipsilateral side, wherever the brain says it, it but you got to do lots of repetitions. We're talking about thousands of repetitions here. Yeah, I got, I got one of those. And I also use the, um, uh, come on, it's a V word, tennis ball, keep it right there. And, and, but you got to make sure you can't just drop it. You're supposed to be keeping on to it while you're, while you're stretching with it, you know? Yeah. So a tennis ball is great. And I used to work at the Kessler Institute, which is a big rehab um, hospital in New Jersey. And 
uh, my job, and this was in the late nineties was to recruit stroke survivors. So they'd send me down to the gym looking for stroke survivors. I was like a bird of prey, come join our study. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, and you could always tell the stroke survivors in the gym, cause it was a big gym. They always had a tennis ball in their hand. Um, and, and then therapists said, no, don't put a tennis ball in there because if you do, you're going to strengthen the overwhelmingly strong flexors. You're not working on extension. I would say the tennis ball is a good idea. If you, you got to contract and relax, contract and relax, contract and relax. What would probably be better um, is something that squishes that you can contract into it and then relax. It opens your hand, contract into it, relax. It opens your hand. There are expensive technologies, the Sabo Flex, for instance, that it's a spring-loaded orthotic. Um, they're hard to, you know, they're very expensive. And there's, I prefer just a squishy ball. You go down to the dollar store, get yourself a squishy ball and start squishing it a thousand times a day and see what happens. All right, Peter, the last thing I try to ask all of our special guests is, what is a question you wish we had asked you, but we didn't? Hmm, that's that's a great question because I, my favorite question was asked. What can you do about spasticity? Awesome. Um, hmm. I, I think you did a good job. I think the open format just allows for a lot of people throwing a lot of different ideas out there. And so I get to hit everything at once. And honestly, I don't know anything else. So thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. I had a ball. I, it's so much fun. Well, we really appreciate, yeah, you being here and, and taking the time out of your busy schedule. I appreciate the folks from the Slow Road to Better who changed around your schedule to be here on a Friday instead of a Tuesday. And I do want to take one more picture because when this gets loaded onto our Facebook page, I will um, include the picture of the brain and I want to include this one. But is this backwards? Is the title backwards? It, it looks right. Um, can I get a, a, a more recent version of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you want to hold it up? Or can we both hold one up? Yeah, maybe we should. Um, but I'm wearing shorts, so no free ah, shows. Unless Sorry you about have that. pants on. That's all right. Be right back. Oh, oh wow. yeah. Look, that looks a lot fancier. Peter. That is backwards, though, isn't it? It's backwards. No, it looks right uh, to me. Oh, it does? It does. Do you want the first edition on there too, or no? I thought I thought what we were gonna do is hold them all up. All right, and now I'm gonna try to take a picture. We're gonna smile. Thank you, Peter, so much. We appreciate your time and your insight and joining us. So I think we're gonna wrap it up on this episode of the Slow Road to Better. Perfect. Thank you so much. Oh my God, you guys cracked me up. Our lawyers made us say this disclaimers what about disclaimers your opinion the group opinion is not valid well it is but it's valid but i'm having a disclaimer so that we don't get in trouble yes doctors doctors who's doctor there's um they they their doctor yes all right yes. so if people hear something on this podcast you should ask your doctor. Doctor. Amen.